Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your post-punk fanboy and Religionless Church host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Tim Burnett and Dan Rosado. Tim is a recent graduate from Claremont School of Theology and the curator of The Way Collective, a faith community in Santa Barbara, California. He is also a previous guest of Religionless Church. Dan is Process Theology's electrical engineer in residence and an all-around great guy. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Comrades. Comrades is a post-hardcore band from Colorado. You can get connected with Tim, Dan, and Comrades and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If Religionless Church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is to become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today I have two distinguished and wonderful guests. I am so excited about this episode. I have Tim Burnett, who is a now uh, second-time guest on Religionless Church, and then a first-timer, Dan Rosado. How you doing, Dan? Doing well. Doing Not well. too shabby. Great. So 
Tim is the curator of The Way Collective, and you can listen to his episode. It's one of my first episodes. It might have been my second episode on Religionless Church. It's, we've gone way back. Um, and anyway, you now have a doctorate, Tim, since, uh, since recording, and you still are curating The Way Collective, which is a wonderful spiritual community that I would totally get involved with if I lived in Santa Barbara. And then Dan. You do not have a doctorate, but that's fine because I don't either, and uh, we're we're just students of Tim Burnett. Uh, but <laughs> of source. But yeah, uh, right. but you do. You, I mean, t- Dan, you are like fully involved, fully emerged within process theology in the process world, um, and uh, so you and, and you're incredibly wise and very well-educated person within process theology. So I, I'm really excited about this chat. But before we dive into process theology and transpantheism, Dan, I got a question for you that I ask all my guests. I don't know if you know what's coming, but who is Dan Rosado? Dan Rosado. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of forgot you asked that question. I should. <laughs> so this will be uh, very much in the moment. And... Um, yeah, who am I to myself? Um, I don't know. I, I'll tell you a little bit of my background. I guess I was born in Puerto Rico, so that's a big oh. part of who I, I am becoming. I knew you were Puerto Rican. I didn't know that you were actually born in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I moved, I moved out when I was about seven years old. Grew up in a military family. Grew up in the South. Ended up in Colorado, and I've been here ever since. Um, I am an electrical engineer. That's what I do for money, as I tell people. <laughs> and yeah, I'm very much interested in process. Um, but who I am to myself, that's uh, always a mystery, a mystery to myself. It's <laughs> a great processy answer. <laughs> All right, uh, Tim, I know things have changed for you. Uh, and I asked you this question a while back, but I'm also curious, maybe things have changed, but who is Tim Burnett to Tim Burnett? Hmm. Well, you know, I think when you asked me that last time, I listened back to my answer and thought, oh, I totally made a, a categorical mistake in terms of my <laughs> response. I think I said I was an actual entity in the process of becoming. What I should have said was that I'm an entirely living nexus uh, mm. who, is, who is in the process of becoming. See, that, uh, that's, so, that's doctorate level work right there. Oh, yeah, you know. That's what a PhD you know. gets you. <laughs> well, I, I don't have one of those, but do have a doctorate. So, um, but yeah, it's like a pseudo uh, doctorate. Yeah. It's like a fake one, like one of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no, I mean, let's see. I, I like Dan's answer in the sense that there are parts of me that are always mysterious to myself and there are parts of me, um, that I can recall and, you know, uh, and so, um, I don't need to, to necessarily re-identify myself in the way I did on the last podcast. There's all, all kinds of parts of me as, you know, a husband and a father and things like that. But, uh, but you know, um, I guess I'm always sort of holding together my experience and my, my temporality and all my memories with that deeper mystery that is also, um, you know, a, a form that, that is a part of what makes me up. So, so yeah, there you go. Love it. So this conversation is a long one coming. Uh, we've been talking sparingly throughout the last few months about a concept that Tim has been really interested in, and that is transpantheism. 
And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit, dive into what exactly transpantheism is and some of its particularities and specifics. Um, and then this conversation will probably divulge into other process-related things. Um, but Tim, let's hear your expertise now that you have a pseudo-doctorate. What in the world, what the hell is transpantheism? Well, I'm really glad you asked, Mason, because <laughs> it's the question that's on everyone's mind, right? Um, well, here, so like, I'll just say, you know, at the beginning here that I think the easiest way to, to talk about it in relationship to other theologies and other, you know, constructs of, of God would be to say that, you know, pantheism would be God equals the world, right? That mm -hmm. God and the world are essentially the same. Um, panentheism, which uh, is also another pretty popular conception these days, especially given, you know, Richard Rohr's sort of popularity, like Dan had brought up a bit earlier, um, is God is greater than the world, meaning there's always some part of God that transcends the world and is beyond the world or holds the world or embraces the world. Mm. Um, and then transpantheism would be a way to say that uh, God infinity symbols the world um, in the sense that <laughs> there's always a never ending reciprocity and relationality. And, uh, and so it's a little bit different than equals and it's a little bit different than greater than because there are parts of God that transcend the world, but there are also parts of the world that transcend God, which is the sort of classically or historically troubling claim to make, you know, uh, but it needs to be said that that transpantheism is a way to talk about, um, that reality that, that there's a reciprocity that is, um, always held together and always moving. Uh, so that's just a a beginning to the conversation. Mm. Can, can you dive deep? Maybe if you want to get a little nerdy and metaphysical, uh, could you describe a little bit metaphysically how transpantheism differs from pantheism and panentheism? I know, like, obviously you kind of gave like a big overarching picture um, and a sort of a analogy of it, but do you want to dive a little deeper into some of the metaphysical differences? Sure. Well, I mean... So process thought in general is basically stemming from the thought of one philosopher whose name is Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who, you know, in his categories of the ultimate basically has three ultimates that are metaphysical ultimates. So God, the world, and creativity. So God and the world are the two ultimates that are always trying to be held together by most theologians. Mm -hmm. um, and people do that in different ways in terms of their metaphysics and process people uh, tend toward emphasizing creativity uh, in terms of the ultimate that sort of um, invites reflection on God in the world. And so process people as, as the, you know, the fluxed nature of a term like process implies uh, are, are always talking more about becoming and more about movement, um, more rather than sort of stasis or trying to hit pause and, and uh, objectify things. Um, and so when it comes to transpantheism, you know, process people can land on like literally all across, you know, the theological spectrum from theism to pantheism to panentheism mm -hmm. to transpantheism to um, you know, maybe even more of a collect, uh, Marjorie Suhaki has more of almost a classical notion of God, um, using process categories. So again, there's, 
there's no, I think some people might hear process and just associate it with panentheism, but the reality is there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can work with Whitehead's thinking to, to make, you know, to conceptualize the divine. And so uh, transpantheism though would be a way to say that um, we get into trouble when we make abstractions. Um, that's just thoroughly Whiteheadian, but mm. we get into trouble when we try to make God the uh, the all-encompassing one, or um, uh, the you know it could even be the ground of being, uh, or the greatest being, or the highest being. We also get into trouble if you know God is only um, the world, right? Uh, and and just that you know in a pantheistic conception would be like the the world is God's body in a sense, and that's all that there really is. And so. This would be a way to try to, well, really philosophically um, fight power discourses in our metaphysical inquiry, uh, which is a way to basically say that we're trying to unplug from power, um, right? Which is already kind of you start to hint at like, can we even really do that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but in a sense, to actually hold those uh, ultimates of God in the world in a creative suspension together. So... Uh, so rather than abstracting one or the other and making them the only ultimate or the dominant ultimate, what, what, um, you know, uh, Derrida would call it sort of logocentrism, you know, making something the one, mm -hmm. uh, transpantheism would say that we're going to double down on becoming in process and we're going to allow what we call God and what we call the world to be held together and not pulled apart. And it's just that in that reciprocal movement or dance that they're bound to together, that, that there's always creative novelty transcending God and, and God always holding and receiving that, that transcendence into, into God's self. And so um, the, the truth of the matter is, and I, I've said this, I think, to both of you before, transpantheism is not not panentheism. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's also not not pantheism you know what i mean and so in a sense it's a way to say what if our categories fall short when we try to pick one of those two panentheism or pantheism options and what if there's a way for us to conceive of this um these two ultimates of god and the world as in slash different from one another um mm. and all and just two ways to talk about multiplicity from two different angles so mm. there you go Could you talk a little bit about the theologian who you've been reading, uh, actually both of you have been reading, that sort of, I don't, I don't know, maybe he coined it or I, I'm not sure, but um, but has been really uh, conceptualizing that. And that is, uh, obviously, you know, Ronald Faber, um, the only good Roland. German theologian. Roland, sorry. Yeah, I'm not yeah. good at my German. But he's the only good German theologian that's ever been, right? Um, so... He's not German. So oh, he's yeah, not. Well, say, I'm, I'm just screwing. German. I'm just screwing all. What? What? Is he from America? <laughs> no. Where's he? Where's he from? Austria, I believe. Oh, 
Austria, Germany. Let's come up. There's like this one in the same. <laughs> one in the same. Anyway, can you talk a little bit more about uh, how he maybe has like conceptualized this and may- maybe he he's um, kind of piggybacking off of another theologian or um, mm-hmm. other philosophers, mm-hmm. but can you talk a little bit about how uh, he's come up with this or has been influenced by this and then um, and maybe how you got involved in transpantheism. Dan, you want to lead in on that one or you want me to go? Well, as I, as I read um, Faber, can we say Faber or Faber? <laughs> Faber. Yeah. Faber. As I read Faber, what I see is that he, first of all, he's very well read. Um, he's he's um, very much um, in conversation with post-structuralism, with Derrida. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of, it blossoms out of that. Um, basically the philosophical and theological conversations of the 20th and 21st centuries. And I think he sees an opportunity, maybe a hole in um, the multiplicity of process theologies. And um, it has to do with what Tim talked about with that power dynamic. And I think from what, from what I've read of him, which isn't a lot, to be honest, um, I've just been in conversation with Tim. It seems like that's what's the primary driver for his transpantheism is that he, he wants to um, avoid God being over the world or the world being over God, all while still within that process framework of um, non-dualistic thinking and uh, avoiding uh, substantialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Dan's leading into some important observations, which are that really, yeah, Faber basically coined this term, uh, not ex nihilo, because there's no such thing, really, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but sort of is, as you can hear in the word, a sort of evolution, you know, a friend of mine has a company that has a shirt that says, God is trans, God is trans, God is trans, you know, and, uh, and in, in a sense, this transpantheistic view is emerging out of uh, what I would call a neo-Whiteheadianism, like like Faber's reading Whitehead directly and trying to bring him into the 21st century. So he's not going with some of the other process theologians' reworkings of Whitehead to, to reconceptualize God um, given their religious convictions, but he's actually philosophically reading mm. Whitehead and then putting him in a conversation with, like Dan said, some post-structuralist philosophers um, and postmodern thinkers, especially uh, Gilles Deleuze. So, so Deleuze is sort of for him, I think, uh, in his concept of the folds, um, is a way for to bring Whitehead's sort of relational ontology into the 21st century. So he does that, and uh, actually, this this term transpantheism emerges. Uh, Mostly, I would even say from Whitehead's own words, especially the final section of process and reality is where he starts to have to hold together these opposites Mm. um, in a mutual suspension. Uh, And so, you know, as Whitehead sort of developed his own theology, in a sense, from uh, really a pan like a Spinozan like pantheism, he sees Whitehead's innovation as taking it beyond that, Uh, but not needing to just create another you know, logic of dominance in a panentheism, but rather to to innovate from pantheism to this transpantheistic place. Mm. So, 
one of the things I'm curious about for both of you, so you both can answer this, is that, you know, the, reading something like transpantheism, reading Faber is, is no easy task, right? Like there's a lot of work that has to be put into it. Um, and and so there's there must be then something that's existentially intriguing about pantheism, about transpantheism for both of you. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it is that exactly intrigues you about transpantheism versus maybe some other theisms within process theology? Me first, okay. <laughs> um, so for me, I I kind of come from more of the heart's horn. Um, trajectory of process theology where you are using process categories to um, articulate Christian faith in particular. Um, so that's kind of my um, cloud, if you will, <laughs> of knowing <laughs> is, is the Christian faith. And um, out of that, I can see maybe some issues or, or things that I was uncomfortable with is, and for me, it was, how is it that the, that God is always just a little bit greater than the world, um, at least in panentheism? Um, you know, panentheism says that in some sense, God is in the world and the world is, in, is within God. And if you think of a, of a, of a pregnant person, um, God would be that person and the world is within mm. God's womb. And it had me thinking, does that mean that God is somehow greater? How is God greater? Um, so those kinds of, of, of questions is what led me to uh, first read Catherine Keller. And from Catherine Keller's work, I encountered Faber. And then uh, I took a risky uh, DM. I slid into Tim's DMs <laughs> <laughs> in hopes that he would uh, take me seriously. And he did. And he, uh, he's been very helpful. And and better understanding Faber because it's not an easy task, especially when you're not studying with him. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Dan and his unsolicited DMs. Tell you what. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm really glad you brought this up, Mason, because I think this is sort of at the heart of any, hopefully, any theological inquiry is what existential you know drive is bringing you to a place of needing to do anything like some nerdy reflection on transpantheism you know and so for me my journey has been one of suffering and trying to integrate death and mortality into my perspective and i think i talked about that on the last episode mm -hmm. that i was on with you so i don't need to rehash that but but you know there was a drive there um, there was work in therapy. There were, there were things happening in my lived experience that were pushing me deeper into my own subconscious and especially sort of my own uh, contemplative work. And so for me, as I, as I went into that, I, I noticed like the, the messiness of uh, my experience and the absence of the divine um, experienced as a part of that, um, the apophatic is, as some like to call it. And so for me, um, process, like Dan said, was already something I had been introduced to through the Hartzornian tradition, and especially through like homebrewed Christianity. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and then though the, the nice and neat articulations that, that you will get um, from, from people whose religious obligation is to uphold a God that 
um, is over the world. Um, didn't match my experience of this sort of dialectic between absence and presence or the presence of absence. Um, and, and so for me, what transpantheism did in terms of like my own philosophical or theological reflection about God was, was put some things together that I didn't quite know how to hold together yet. Um, and so this ephemerality, which means the passingness of things, the fact that things are always moving and and as I said earlier, you can't hit pause. Um, and this sort of deeply existential register in my own experience of this absencing presence um, or this presencing absence. Again, I think they kind of go, it's like a dialectic between grief and love, basically. Um, mm. Led me to a place where I needed to be able to, and if I was going to stay doing any sort of philosophical or process theological reflection, it was going to have to be in line with that experience. And so, mm. you know, once, once you start reading the mystics, you see that this is something that is a common theme throughout the whole, you know, trajectory of the mystical tradition from the dark night of the soul to, um, you know, to a number of different people who have this experience. And so rather than just say, well, it's just all a mystery. And, you know, I just, not going to do any inquiry whatsoever you know process people will say you know let's let's talk about the nature of that mystery you know and and so for me transpantheism is the best way if you want to take any sort of rational empirical or speculative theology to have like a speculative mysticism in a sense uh and it needs to be said as a sort of disclaimer when i say something like that that i realize that in saying that it's the best speculative mystical theology that I need to unsay it at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm. And that, that what I mean by that is that the, the, that the sort of mystery is primary um, and that our articulations of it or our abstractions of it or our fancy highfalutin transpantheisms of it are always secondary to that. So, mm. so that's what brings me to this conversation. Mm. One other thing he said. Yeah. <laughs> So good. <laughs> I forgot to bring in like some of the personal things as well, because I, I think uh, out of my own contemplative practice, I'm, I'm starting to see that um, some of the, uh, the abstractions that I had uh, formulated kind of don't hold. And yeah, I think it's just worth, God is a question worth pursuing and, and that mystery is worth pushing into and, and being creative and a little bit fun with it, that theopoesis. So I've got a couple more questions for both of you before um, we kind of I'll open it up for you both to have questions um, for one another. Uh, but my first question is, we, we've talked a little bit about this, about how there is a, a there's a difficulty in trying to bring something like transpantheism to the broader masses of, of the world. Uh, 
what what is the trick there? What's happening? Why why is something like transpantheism something that's really difficult to um, infiltrate within uh, the imagination of, of the uh, of a mass of people? And, and what what do you think we could do to kind of alleviate that or help that? Um, anyway, take it away. Whoever wants to go. That's a big question. That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Do you want me to jump in, Dan, or you want to? Um, you go in first and see okay. what. Uh... So the uh, yeah again, Mason, coming with the uh, the pointed questions. You know, this is a good one. Um, where religion goes wrong, uh, especially in the West, is when it gets in bed with power. And so mm. for me, one way to talk about this that might be more accessible is um, by getting to raise questions around what would it look like to um, remove God from the power discourses in the West that, that have been used to coerce and oppress um, conquest sort of crusade mentalities um, and to really conceive of God as love. Um, and what would, if we took the concept of God as love and then did some sort of post-structuralist process philosophical reflection, what would that look like? And I think many of us are longing for perhaps something like a more robust um, theology that is engaged with science, that's engaged with philosophy, that's engaged with cosmology and really is not skirting any of that in its claims, right? And again, just sort of abstracting God as a, as a powerful figure uh, for our religious purposes, right? So for me, it comes from that heart of God as love. What could a God who is love look like in a world of uh, passingness and suffering and pain? Um, you know, Faber calls that the polyphilic embrace of multiplicity. How, what is this, this all-loving multi-loving embrace of a becoming world you know what is that and and could we even unplug that from from needing to say something like god's all-powerful or all-transcending of the mm. world um and so for me that's where this gets this is sort of the rubber hits the road in the sense that we can say poetically when we preach in our own lives that god is love but when it comes to a you know fielding some questions from some thoughtful people around what does that even mean um, in a world like ours in 2019, that's where this, this conversation can be used as a sort of undergirding resource. Um, mm. But the, the reality is I think many people are just fine with a response like God is love and they don't need to have a robust, mm. they might just be fine with the, with the mystery and, and kind of diving into the descent of that in their own practice, which I think also needs to be said, that's totally great. That's totally fine. You know, you don't need to go anywhere as long as you can be fully where you are in a sense, you know? And so this isn't for everyone, but I think, you know, I think our Western Christian expressions of, of theology, especially have suffered from like, not only putting God in bed with power, but also a sort of pseudo-intellectual or anti-intellectual engagement. So for me, that's where this stuff starts to come together. Mm. Yeah, I, and I think um, for people that are interested in process theology in general and really want to work out the implications of, of really 
um, conceptualizing God as love and allowing that to reframe um, what they've been handed down. I think Tom Ord is a really good starting place because mm -hmm. that's been his life's work is to look at love and look at God and follow that thread and, and see where it takes you. Um, and then I think from that starting point of really taking in the consequences, because it's not a pretty journey, you know, <laughs> depending on what's been handed down to you. I'm coming again from a, a Christian, a Western Christian framework, um, mostly an evangelical background, but um, it, it's going to be a, a, a painful one. But once you get and internalize that God is love, um, for those that are interested, like Tim says, and this isn't for everyone, that they want to engage science and, and philosophy rigorously, um, then you can kind of take the next step and start combining uh, this, the work of other people. Mm. Another question that I have that I think is intriguing, and I don't know if we, we've talked about it a ton, but I'd be interested in exploring is... Uh, I think a potential way that this conversation could be alienated for some people is that for some people, you know, they're, they, they aren't really quite interested in the intellectual discussion of it. They want to practice the embodied practices of, of what the implications of something like transpantheism are. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the ways that you can see in embodied practices or, um, or, or re like real things that people can do that you, you think are, are implicatory, implicatory, I don't know, how, however you say it, of transpantheism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, so part of my dissertation work was in connecting transpantheism with praxis. So one way uh, to talk about that from, again, from the, the Christian you know, perspective here in the West would be something like centering prayer. Um, in which is a practice of not only of silence, but of sort of, you know, descending to the center or the heart of your becoming um, and being present there in that, in that way, in that place. And what that will actually do um, over time, and this is, is, you know, neurobiological evidence for this, is it'll rewire your perceptual field um, to move from individuality to connection with, mm. you know, uh, m the moreness of the world around you, um, or you could say the divine. Um, and so, so one way to talk about this is, I think, again, I, I talked a little bit already about some of my experiences, but, but when you descend into a practice like that, and you really try to commit and cultivate um, that within yourself, I think that transpantheism is actually a better explanation of divine reality um, given those experiences than the other options that are mm. out there because precisely because it is thoroughly and unapologetically non-dual um, and I think Whitehead w was that way I think um, you know and I and I think this sort of contemplative invitation just sort of lends itself toward the cultivation of something like a non-dual mind and you know non-dual speech um, non-judgmental sort of treatment of your own self and, and, you know, as an entity having become and, and, you know, and so, um, so for me, if I'm going to say that there's some sort of loving embrace of that, 
and that's what I'm descending into um, or, or perhaps participating in um, through some intentional practices. I just find transpantheism to be, um, you know, uh, a much a much more um, accurate even uh, invitation, you know, to to the mystery in that way or the mystagogy of becoming as, as we might call it. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad Tim touched on the, on the, on that personal uh, level at the contemplative, contemplative level. But I think also there's a, a social dimension that, that comes out of that personal practice is uh, the, en the engagement and how we engage with difference in the world. Mm. Um, it's if, if we're in, it made in the image or we become in the image of this divine, of this God, we are also called to lovingly embrace difference in all of its forms. So that obviously has uh, implications at the intersections of, of race and religion and gender, all of that. Today, I have Laura from Comrades, and Laura is a delightful, wonderful human being who also happens to be a very good bass player and a very good vocalist. And one of my favorite post-hardcore bands, uh, Comrades, has been, uh, God, I don't know how long I've been listening to you all, several, oh, like probably five or six years now, um, yeah. at least since uh, you released Lone Gray. And have been a really big fan. I love like that sound of music. I remember when we like first met when you played a house show in Minneapolis. I mentioned something along the lines of you sounding a lot like Beloved, which is one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, I remember you found that very endearing. Uh, and so anyway, <laughs> that that sound is one of my favorite kind of sounds. And so for a band like uh, Comrades to be able to to have a really similar sound to to Beloved uh, just warms my heart. Um, but also, like you all have like a very distinct sound um, that's not you know just a ripoff of Beloved. So uh, right. all that's to say, uh, you all are one of my favorite bands out there. Um, and so I've got a number of questions for you that I'm really excited to ask you. Um, and just thank you for for being on this. Oh, thanks for having me. So. Comrades just recently released a new album, uh, and it's super, super wonderful. You all released it back in June, yeah. and it's called For We Are Not Yet, We Are Only Becoming, which is a beautiful, beautiful line. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and so before I get into like the very first question I want to ask, I'm just really quickly curious, is that line from a book or something that you maybe have read? Yeah. Um, so I have been reading a lot of George MacDonald, okay. um, who was an author that C.S. Lewis read a lot of, um, and he's a fantastic fiction writer, but he was also a preacher and he has all these, like, there's just books of sermons and that kind of stuff. Um, but, um, I was reading his book, The Hope of the Gospel, and, um, which I feel like honestly is a lot of things that I've I think people that have been like burned by the church or 
religion or whatever it is um it just is full of like so many thoughts that i feel like resonate with hearts that are wounded Mm, um mm -hmm. but he like yeah it was just like there was a line and it's crazy because i feel like he packs so much into a sentence um (laughs) those are always the best for everything it's been taking so long to read all this stuff that he's written in this book um and the book's like i don't know it's like a quarter of an inch thick it's ridiculous how long it's taking me to read this teeny tiny book Mm. um but yeah when i read that line i was just like that's it like and i wrote it down in my journal and i didn't know that was going to be the album title when i wrote it down but i was just like yeah it's a doozy yeah i mean it's just talking about how like there's a process and you can't rush it and it's not over until you're you're on the other side of heaven you know Mm. like that's just how our life is and i feel like a lot of times we think that once we get to this age we're gonna you know arrive at whatever the goal is or or you know once we have this much money or once we have whatever it is and i mean the, the the reality is we're always in process and there's always some um aspect of our lives that is going to need to be like evolving into whatever the future or present demands of us so Mm -hmm. anyway i was just like this is it this is the title that's awesome in addition to that album title what were some of the themes lyrically that you were trying to convey in this new album oh man writing this record was one of the hardest things i ever did because Mm. um I, i i think when it comes to music because a lot of times um when i write songs like with all the other comrades records um we didn't have that many songs with lyrics and so i could just pick which ones were very comfortable for me to just like put out there um or they were just like ideas and not necessarily experiences and um so this record was like hey laura you get to write all the songs like all the words (laughs) and i was just like cool and then my vulnerability complex was like no no (laughs) this is scary Mm. um and it was also hard because i read through my journals from the past three years um and there's just a lot of stuff that happened so when i wrote these songs i tried to be as honest as I could about the things that I felt and the things that I went through and um, also maintain that like there's always like even through those things which is I mean it goes back to the album, album title like there's things that happen that refine us in really difficult situations and um, one of the things that I think was overarching uh, was a, a line that I've just kind of applied to my life, um, which is the dark makes the light shine all the brighter. Mm. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, how it's you, you need contrast, mm. like you need mm-hmm. opposite for one to be what it is, you know, like you can't have darkness without light and light mm-hmm. cannot be light. It doesn't have darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause then it's just like an overwhelming thing. And so um, 
yeah um I would say that that would be the theme that I was going for the most mm-hmm. in, all the, in all the songs I know um some of them are different and they all deal with like different elements of just existence mm-hmm. um, but yeah what artists and bands were you all listening to at the time of writing the album that may have been intentionally or even unintentionally influencing the sound of the album? Man. I mean, I listened to a lot of Julian Baker <laughs> when I was writing it, but I don't, I don't know. I think we always have that whole like thrice and we have, there's mm. just some bands that like our music feels like, these people or these musicians are never going to not be part of it. Mm. Um, like, um, like as cities burn, sign of Jewish or darkest. Mm-hmm. Um, and like threats, like VA Sue and like those records, um, they're just so beautiful and well thought out. And we, um, loved them so much that I don't know if you can, take them out of us when we yeah. play music together um and life in your way too which is like which sounds so really <laughs> ridiculous but yeah um i think I don't, we all listen to a bunch of chill music mm. um john really likes that whole like indie female i don't want to say female fronted because that's not a genre but like women playing indie music that's like 90s shoegazy mm. stuff he's listening to a lot of that but also like fame and then joe's been listening to a lot of like gregory allen isakov and um which none like those things are so different than yeah. what we actually play so um and those are things that we were listening to like when we wrote the record so I don't know how much of like other people's current music we were actually listening to. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it actually influenced what we did. Um, but because I feel like we all get together and we're just like, does this sound like comrades? Does it not sound like yeah. comrades? Like, yes, no. Okay. Does this feel like what we should write? Yes, no. And we go from there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah also it was like October of last year that we were doing this so all of my musical like what catalog I was listening to at the time is just kind of blurry honestly. yeah <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all of it yeah. after a while yeah I've been just like slamming me without you and Manchester Orchestra for the past three months so as one should as one should yeah Last question, Laura. How can listeners get connected with Comrades and the new album and all the things that they should get connected to with you all? Um, so all of our social media handles um, are We Are Comrades or is We Are, no, are We Are Comrades. Mm-hmm. And why is that so hard for me today? And um, our website is wearecomrades.com. And we're on Spotify and Apple Music and Google Play. And if Amazon has music, then we're probably on there too. So, um, yeah, we're available on a diverse uh, platform and uh, streaming website. 
But ultimately, everybody should buy one of the beautiful new vinyls. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Those are so great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are really cool. I think that's one of my favorite parts about um, putting on a new record is picking the colors for vinyl. Mm. And our colored vinyl came out just ugh, like we have. It's like gray with the translucent and teal splatter. Mm -hmm. The teal with the white. And it looks like the ocean. And it's, mm -hmm. I just, I could not have, I literally like putting this record together, everything came together so perfectly. I was shocked. And so, I, yeah, it's like one of those things where you just cry thinking about it. It's fine. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for the new album. Thank you for the music and inspiration that uh, you create in this world. Uh, I, I love being able to chat with you and hopefully you can come to the Twin Cities here soon. Oh yeah, we'll try our best. Do you, either one of you have questions for, for the other? Sure. Uh, so Tim, I'm curious to know how transpantheism uh, informs or affects the way you relate to your children, specifically when it comes to matters of religion. And the, the second part of that question would be how it has changed the way you relate to the way collected. Yeah. Um, so by the time I had had children, I had already been sort of lured by the theopoetical tradition uh, to try to find ways to, you know, discourse with myself with, with uh, generosity, you know what I mean? And uh, embracing metaphor, embracing, um, you know, beyondness uh, in a sense, in the way that I talk about it. So. So when it comes to, you know, t doing something like talking about God with my kids, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty poetical with the way that, that we talk about that. So the simple answer to that is usually something like, again, from the, from the Christian perspective is that God is love and Jesus is, is what love looks like in a person. Uh, at, the, at this age, they're five and three. They don't need much more than that. Um, but one of the other things that might be a little bit more wink wink sort of transpantheistic is that I recite these, these things with my kids most nights at bedtime. And one of the things that it says is I am made of love and there's nothing I can do to lose it or to earn it. You know what I mean? And mm. so very Pauline. Well, well in a sense, but I, I think, you know, if you're going to talk about the polyphilic embrace of, of little becoming entities like my kids, you know what I mean? I don't know what else that really looks like, you know, um, because as we know, the voice of God is usually silence. Um, mm. and, and that, that, you know, I think on some level, not sometimes our subjective experience yields that for us, but also I think more often than not, we experience that to be true in our relationships with other people. So, 
Um, so there's that element, you know, with my children that uh, maybe when my kids are, you know, in their 20s and uh, if they're as emo as I am, you know, maybe they'll be asking transpantheistic specific questions or something. But but uh, but then, you know, with the Wake Collective, too, I think, um, again, I, I think so we have five C's. One of the C's is contemplation that are our, our community practices, basically. And if you're going to start talking contemplatively about God and say anything other than, well, God was this feeling I had when I watched the sunset last week, you know, if you're going to say anything um, constructive or perhaps D slash constructive about God, it's going to start sounding transpantheistic pretty quickly. And so mm. when we talk about God, we not only embrace a theopoetics uh, in terms of leaving a lot of room, a lot of metaphor, a lot of image. Um, but, you know, when we do get a little constructive and cosmological about it, um, it just it just pushes into this region really quickly. I mean, if you do any sort of metaphysical inquiry, you notice, hey, okay, we're going to create an event ontology now rather than a substance ontology. That means that the smallest little bits of the world are these little moments of happening and um, they're affective, they feel, you know what I mean? And then you're going to go, well, what does that mean? And, you know, like, what does it mean for me to have a material body in a world like that? And, and so once you start to do that, you're like, okay, wait a second. Now we're pushing through to this, this register where even our best explanations in interpreting the scientific evidence and data are only going to be these speculative judgments, what, what Whitehead calls, they're going to be imaginative leaps. When you take imaginative leaps, again, I, I think you're going to start hitting into this, this realm of non-duality, of mystery, of becoming. And, and when you go there, you know, I usually go transpantheistic. So... So, um, but again, I would say probably about 90% of the conversation we're having right now, even more of the academic stuff, I don't even ever talk about, you know, mm -hmm. it's more of a practical pastoral voice. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and the reason I asked both of those questions is because I think in answering those questions, you better answered a previous question. Um, mm. So, I, and I think it's, it's helpful to think about how would you explain this to kids, right? Like, mm. yeah, you mm -hmm. break it down and. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is just to, to keep, you know, vibing on this is my five-year-old has been asking a lot about death lately, you know, um, that was me. Yeah. Right. And so I think, you know, my partner, Kara and I we were laying in bed with our kids the last, it was probably last night, the night before, and it just comes up and my three-year-old's listening in, you know, and he's like, uh, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I think if you talk about, you know, God, from this perspective, you can say something like, we come from God and we return to God, you know, and that our lives are sort of held or embraced by God, um, and that we are, we're on an adventure for the time that we're here, and we don't know how long that's going to be, um, but we do know that, you know, our lives are sort of these monuments, that's too static an image, you know. I was going to say monuments to beauty, but our lives are sort of these, um, you know, one, one image I like that's from this poem um, is that if you take the image of an hourglass and the sand slowly kind of going to the bottom, our lives are these mounds or these collections of, of beauty, you know, and the adventure is going to keep going until it, it's not. And uh, there's a loving beginning and a loving end to that. And so 
So something like that is even what we're talking about with death with our mm -hmm. five-year-old, you know? Yeah. And I don't, you know, obviously just so much like in terms of what he's able, even able to process himself and like, you know, the, the stage of development his brain's at and everything like that. But, but yeah, so, so there's something else there, I guess. Hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for this conversation. I, I, I'm super intrigued. I, I wish I could dive more into reading um, Faber and more about transpantheism, but I'm just so swamped with other seminary reading. But, um, but alas, someday that will happen, and I'm really excited about it um, to be able to dig more into it. But thank you, Tim, for for your life and for your work and for your inspiration uh about something like transpantheism and and theopoetics and, and process theology and thank you dan for being this wonderful companion on this journey as we as we uh grow in in our theology and grow spiritually and um in in our friendship you guys are you guys are awesome thank you uh, before Thanks, before uh, we end, though, uh, I almost forgot. What are ways that uh, people can get connected to you and your your guys's work? Uh, so for me, I'm on Twitter at TD Burnett. You can go to tdburnett.com uh, and check out my website. I have some articles that I write on Medium every so often. I need to start that that habit back up. Um, I feel like I've been in a season of uh, sort of collecting and, and sifting and sorting. So it'll probably start to happen again soon. Uh, and you can check out waycollective.org to follow along with what our community is up to here on the ground in Santa Barbara. So is there by any chance my favorite podcast in the entire world that we have? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, Mason. How frequent is that? You know, uh, there, yeah, I'm also the host of something called the Theopoetics Podcast. So you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, like any other thing you might listen to podcastery on. So, um, so yeah, we're gonna. I got a couple episodes we're gonna release here in the next month, and then it will probably take a little. Season one will be closed, and then we'll come to a new season soon. Perfect. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's pretty much the only place that, that I am publicly at underscore Daniel Rosado. Um, I also have like two or three blog posts on Medium. I've every year I'm like, this is the year that I'm going to start writing again. <laughs> and that doesn't happen. I'm like, straight up, I'm just scared to put that stuff out there mm. and read it myself a year later and like, oh, completely disagree with this or, you know <laughs> um other than that i'm involved with brew theology um you can find them on twitter or just brewtheology.org it's an organization and a podcast um it's the idea is to create community um that, that talks about some of these questions of of ultimacy um and yeah if you're interested go to brewtheology.org or find us on twitter or wherever perfect well, thank you so much, guys. Uh, I, it's a pleasure to have a conversation with probably fathers of two of the cutest daughters in the world. Um, and so I can't be more honored. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having us, Mason.
If you would like to connect with Tim, Dan, and comrades in their work, you can find links in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. Yeah, yeah.